0: You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message.
1: Jesus, thank you so much that there's power in your name. And Jesus, I pray over every single person in this room, I pray if anxiety, anxiety, is at the front door because of a test or uh, a paper that needs to be written, whether it's plans for the future, whether it's fear about what's next. Jesus, I pray that your power may be made perfect and cast out all anxiety and fear so that we can enter in and engage with you as we open up your word and hear from our dear friend. Uh, thank you so much for this morning. And we all said, amen. You can take a seat. <clears throat> Today we have the gift of hearing from a good friend. We're in the chapel frame, which we've been, uh, this last series, we broke down each chapel frame and we heard from Jeannie Banter on heart holiness. And that's what today is about, heart holiness, being set apart, pursuing holiness. And we're hearing from our good friend, Dr. Kevin Brown. Dr. Kevin Brown has all sorts of degrees, all sorts of titles. Uh, He has been a gift to this university, a dear gift, to me, but I think more than anything that I appreciate about Dr. Kevin Brown is his humility and the fact that he's yet just another brother in Christ. To everyone in this room that has been meeting with Jesus, open up his scriptures and will take us to the place that he's already been. And that's good news, right? We don't need to be impressed. We just need to meet with Jesus. So let's hear it for Dr. Brown as he opens up his word.
0: Thank you, Zach. You know, I'd say I'm the most humble person ever. I, is that? No. I'm, I'm kidding. Hey, uh, as I open today, um, I just wanted to, to share a few preliminary comments. I wanted to tell you, I actually don't think novelty is a virtue for chapel. I think in some settings it's, it's a virtue. But in chapel, I prioritize clarity over creativity or novelty. I think that any chapel speaker should, should come with a fresh message. It should be thoughtful. It should be relevant to the students, kind of know your audience. Um, but the goal is not to necessarily say something new or creative. The goal is to bear witness to important Christian truths. So, in, in that spirit… Uh, I want to share with you something today that I have been talking about for a long, long time. It's interesting to even look back at stuff I did in grad school a long time ago. and It's like, wow, I was still taught like these themes were just bubbling up within me during that period of time. So I want to open with two stories that I, I always shared in the business ethics class that I taught here. And they both occurred in the early 1990s. So the first one related to an Amtrak train that was going near Mobile, Alabama, middle of the night. It went over a bridge. It was unstable. And the bridge gave way, and this train sunk into the water in the middle of the night. And there was a a young girl on the train. Her name was Andrea Chauncey, and she had severe cerebral palsy. And her parents, Gary and Mary Jane, woke up, quickly realized what was happening, and in just the last few seconds of their life, they managed to open a window and push their daughter, Andrea, through the opening in the window, saving her life as they sunk to their watery grave. It was terrible, but this incredible act of sacrifice. Around that same time, there was another instance where uh, a Mazda protégé, they don't make those anymore, uh, went down the bank of the John D. Long Lake and trapped in the back seat of this vehicle uh, was a young, uh, uh, young boy named Michael. He was three years old. His brother Alexander was one years old and it went into the lake And unfortunately, there would be no heroic effort to save either one of them. They both died. And even more disturbing, in the days that followed, it was discovered that their young troubled mother, a woman by the name of Susan Smith, had actually deliberately sent them to their death so that she could sustain an affair with a local businessman who made it clear to her that he did not want kids in their equation. These are very different stories, but they, they share an important commonality, and that is love, and, and specifically sacrificial love. And what I mean by that is the, the difference is the difference between the love of the, the sacrifice of self for the love of another And the sacrifice of another for the love of self. Put differently, the honorific moral excellence of the Chaunceys and the repugnant moral bankruptcy of Susan Smith is differentiated by what was loved. Not by the presence of sacrifice or love, but the direction, the object of love. While in public earlier this year, I saw someone wearing a T-shirt that said, Do what you love and do it often. And probably like a lot of bumper stickers or T-shirts like this uh, that, that sound nice, it's not given a lot of philosophical attention. And uh, I just thought, I don't think that's a very good idea. <laughs> it really depends on what you love, right? What is, what is the essence of what you love? Not just simply do what you love, and do it often. So, it was St. Augustine who defined virtue as ordered affection, ordered love, ordered desire. And for him, love, ordered love, is desiring that which is truly desirable, preferring that which is truly preferable, pursuing that which is truly worthy of our pursuit. Augustine says, in order to discover the character of any people, observe what they love. To know the character of any people, observe what they love. So let me give you a creative example of ordered love. I have this, I have this fantasy of joining uh, Professor Gaffney, Sean Gaffney, and teaching important timeless truths through the medium of Twilight Zone episodes. Um, I love the Twilight Zone. I've watched every one of them with uh, my son. Now I'm working through them again with my daughter. They're fables. They're, there is a, a moral to the story. And one of my favorites is called A Nice Place to Visit. You should check it out. And the story is about a lifelong criminal. He's killed in a, a shootout with the police at the very beginning. And then he finds himself in this very cozy afterlife. He's in this beautiful high-rise apartment, and it's, it's very lavish. And here's what he finds in the afterlife. He gets everything that he wants. He gets everything that he wants. If he wants women, they appear. If he wants food, a steak dinner is before him. He's dressed to the nines. When he gambles, whether it's blackjack, or dice, or a slot machine, shooting pool, he immediately wins. And he thinks this is great, but after a while, he doesn't like getting everything he wants. In other words, it doesn't seem to fulfill him. He feels empty. He feels frustrated. And so he has a guide throughout this episode, and at the end of the show, he says, look, he says this to the guide, look, I don't want to be in heaven anymore. I want to go to the other place. And in ironic Twilight Zone fashion the host which is the devil says what ever gave you the impression you were in heaven you are in the other place dun 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 <laughs> so the show ends with rod serling's traditional summary he says a scared angry little man who never got a break now he has everything he's ever wanted and he has to live with it for eternity it reminded me of a line from CS Lewis's book The Problem of Pain where he defines those in hell as people forever experiencing the horrible freedom they have demanded. Hell is people forever experiencing the horrible freedom they have demanded. And I like this episode because I think it communicates an important spiritual truth If we got everything we wanted for eternity, that would either be our salvation or our damnation. It would either be our salvation or our damnation. The difference relates to what we want. The fact that we desire things is not the problem, nor is the problem getting what we want. We were made to desire and we were made to be satisfied. Those are good things. We celebrate that in the Christian faith tradition. The issue is what we desire and what truly satisfies. Here's why this matters. When I was growing up, and I've shared this before, here's kind of the, the story I was told. The, the story was, we're born into a gap, and there's a gap between us and a gap… Uh, or that gap between us and God, and Jesus Christ came to fill that gap. This is orthodox Christian theology. And if you believe the right things and you declare those things, then you're in. You go to heaven. But if you don't believe the right things, and if you don't declare the right things you're out. You go somewhere else. And you might put it this way, I was taught that salvation was secured with the faculties above my neck. What I believe with my mind and what I utter with my mouth. Now, what you believe is important, super important. I'm not trying to delegitimize that. Ideas are important. I'm an educator. You're at a university. Ideas matter. But let me offer a different idea. Could it be that the life of faith is perhaps best characterized not by what we believe, but by what we love? Not simply by what we affirm with our mouth, but what we want in our heart. It was the French philosopher Descartes who said, I think, therefore I am. This kind of Signal phrase at the the genesis of modernity. In other words, my humanity, your humanity, is bound up in and characterized by our rational faculties. And as Christians, we place a great deal of weight on rationality. But our humanity is more than our ability to rationalize, we're something more. We're doxological. This is a wonderful statement uh, by Phil Kinison. He's a scholar. He says this, Every human life is an embodied argument about what things are worth doing, who or what is worthy of attention, who or what is worthy of allegiance and sacrifice, and what projects or endeavors are worthy of human energies. In short, every human life is bent toward something every human life is is an act of worship. You know the best evidence of this? Look at the gazillions of dollars that are spent on advertising. Advertising that plays to our emotions and to our desires, not necessarily to calculated rationality. We don't turn on some desire switch. We suffer desire. We cannot not desire. I've said this before. Again, it's worth repeating. Augustine, uh, he says, a rock's weight, the weight of a rock will make it roll down a hill. And the weight of fire makes it rise to the sky. In other words, an object is moved by its weight. And then he says, my weight is my love. An object is moved by its weight. Our weight is our love. We go where our loves take us. Now, there are a few important things to say here. A stone has no say in where it will roll because of its weight. But as humans, we can direct our love towards certain things as an act of the will. And Augustine believed that a soul is conformed to the thing that it loves, the object of desire. So, if a soul loves insubstantial, disordered things, we will become shadowy and disordered. We will become subhuman. And if a soul loves elevated, eternal things, we'll become heavenly. In other words, we are what we love. This is why Simone Weil says, one only has the choice between God and idolatry. That's it. There's no other possibility, for the faculty of worship is in us, and it's either directed somewhere into this world or into another. I came across a a quote a couple of years ago uh, from a Christian personality, and they said that Christian flourishing is a matter of having the right ideas and getting rid of the wrong ones. The totality of the Christian experience, they said, is a matter of having the right ideas and then getting rid of the wrong ones. And I think of James 2.19 when I read that. Remember he says, you believe there's one God? Good, even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You believe in God, so do demons. There's more than that. There is no faith without belief, but belief does not constitute the totality of our faith. The center of gravity for us is cardia, our heart, not simply our head. Aquinas says, love is like a motion, and all motion is towards something, We're always motioning towards something. It's not simply about what we think. It's not simply about our ideas, what we know. It's about what we love and what we're motioning towards. I'll never forget years ago being in the kitchen parsonage of my then-girlfriend Maria and sitting down with her parents and asking them nervously if I could propose to their daughter. And my father-in-law, Hubert, said, Kevin, I want to know two things. I want to know that you love the Lord with all your heart. And I want to know that you love my daughter with all your heart. It's interesting to me that he started by asking me what I loved. So let me ask you a theological question. What if when we encounter God, God won't simply ask us what we believe. He'll ask us what we want. He'll ask us what we desire. He'll ask us what we love. Maybe God doesn't condemn us to hell or allow us into heaven so much as He obliges our preference for one or the other. He seconds our motion. This was the profound idea in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Strongly encourage you to read that. The book describes a bus that traverses the expanse between hell and heaven, where the inhabitants of the former visit their loved ones in the latter. But while heaven's doors are wide open for the visitors, most opt to return to the gray town, to hell. Why do they do that? They have an opportunity to go to heaven. They'd rather return to hell. Why? And Lewis says, because they prefer hell. They desire autonomy and self-righteousness. Their scorn for others, their lust, their disordered affections were not suited for a heavenly reality. So though the invitation for heaven is available to them in this book, God ultimately obliges their preference to return to the dreary solitude that they came from. In other words, Lewis is suggesting that the doors to hell are perhaps locked From the inside. He said there are two types of people, those who say to the Lord, your will be done, and those who refuse to, and God looks at them and says, okay, your will be done. We often think of heaven or hell as a blessing we receive or a punishment we deserve. Seldom do we think of either as a destination that we might actually preferred. That is, we will desire our way into eternity but the nature of our eternity will be proportionate to the nature of our desires. In this way, for God to give us what we want might be His greatest gift or His harshest judgment. It's a fascinating scene. I think I've shared this before. Uh, notes from the Tilta World. Indy Wilson. He describes this dinner where some students are having dinner with their faculty, and there's an atheist student, and she has a Protestant faculty member, and she's messing with him a little bit. She said, do you think I'm going to hell? Good dinner conversation. But she's surprised by his answer. He said, don't you want to? He said, God is who he is. Do you want him? I've heard before people say, how could a loving God send people to hell? Have you heard this? It's a very common refrain. I think it's a good theological question. But I think the rejoinder to that is not simply how could a loving God send people to hell, how could a loving God make people go to heaven if they don't want to be there with Him. Emily Dickinson has this line, who has not found the heaven below will fail of it above. God's residence is next to mine, His furniture is love. If we've not found the heaven below, what makes us think we will succeed in it above? So let me just end with with two suggestions here. First, as I've stated, virtue and ordered love have, I believe, eternal implications for us. And here's another way to put it, will heaven be familiar to me based upon the affections and the inclinations that I'm drawing myself into, that I'm habituating in my day-to-day life today? Will heaven be familiar to me? If I have contempt for those who are around me, if, if I worship myself, if my life is oriented around idols outside of God, money, sex, prestige, power, pleasure, if I'm constantly suspicious and divisive and mistrustful, if I hoard my resources, if freedom is just simply me getting to do whatever I want, if I valorize autonomy and control, if I instrumentalize others, if I'm xenophobic, if I don't like being around every tribe and every tongue and every nation, if these practices, desires, and sensibilities are habituated and woven deeply into the fabric of my daily life, then the question of whether or not you or I get into heaven is far less relevant than the question of, do we want to actually be there? That's why John Wesley said, love accompanies us to and adorns us in eternity. Love will accompany us into eternity. It prepares us and constitutes heaven, he says. Love will accompany us to eternity. We will desire our way into eternity, but the kind of eternity we have will relate to the desires we foster today. I know what you believe. You're at Asbury. I know what you believe. What do you want? Second, ordered love has eternal implications, but it has implications for the here and now. It has implications for our flourishing as persons, for satisfaction, gratification, and fulfillment for living a good life. Christianity has some really interesting history in how it thinks about and has thought about desire. So I used to teach economics here, and everyone, I would tell people, I teach economics and they're like, what do you think the stock market's gonna do? I'm like, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, I thought economics was interesting because its subject is persons. How do people make decisions under conditions of scarcity? But there are a lot of assumptions about human persons in it. And in the economics discipline, one of those assumptions is that having your preferences satisfied makes you better off. If you want to increase utility in a given arrangement, create the conditions where people can have their idiosyncratic, unique preferences satisfied. The authors Robert and Edward Skidelsky put it perfectly. I love sharing this quote with my friend Thane Urie, economists are all for the satisfaction of desires. But as for the desires themselves, they, main, main, they remain fastidiously indifferent. <laughs> They're all for the satisfaction of our desires. But as for the actual desires, they remain fastidiously indifferent. Now, much more can be said, but embedded in our modern assumptions is the notion that freedom is merely the expansion of choice, and choice creates value. Something is valuable because I choose it. I don't choose it because it's valuable independent of my ability to choose it. Does that make sense? Today, we say choice creates value. Historically, we would say choice responds to value. In his book, Tortured Wonders, Rodney Clapp writes, for Christian spirituality, desire can never be considered apart from its object. A desire is known as good or evil only when we take account of what is desired, the object of desire, just like my opening story. God wants us to desire the right things, and moreover, to find satisfaction now in the things that we desire. Augustine, remember, he says, you have made us for yourself. Restless are our hearts, until they find their rest in thee. Jesus says in John 6, 35, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In Matthew 5, he said, blessed are those who have an appetite for a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. They shall be filled. Augustine was influenced by Cicero, who said, to desire what one should not, that's unhappiness itself. So, let me ask again. What do you want? What do you desire? I know what you believe, I think. What do you want? Virtue, says Augustine, is a desire for the good, loving the right things. Time won't allow me to talk about the things that form our loves, those cultural liturgies, the habits, the practices that reinforce values and bend our affections in a particular direction. I just want to today introduce and reintroduce and keep talking about this important idea, our eternal reality, our flourishing as people, our communal obligations. It's not simply a matter of what we believe, though what we believe is important. And it's not simply a matter of what we say, though our declarations matter. It's not simply a matter of what we do, Though our habits and our practices shape us, the Christian life turns on the heart. Hannah Arendt called it appetitus. What do you hunger for? What's your appetite? In the fall of 2022, um, Pastor Steve Deneff, Crouching Tiger, as he is called sometimes, he came and shared with our community And he gave us a story of where he switched from one computer operating system to another one. And he said, everything, everything changed. The new system afforded enhanced aptitude, greater capacity, and broader freedom. And he made the connection for us. He said, the closest thing we have in Scripture to a human operating system is the heart. He challenged our community to seek the Lord and ask Him for a new heart, a new operating system, and to guard it and to grow it. And I remember just sitting over there, and I was emotional because I thought, that's it. That's it. This is the message for us. Through my adult years, I've heard holiness preached and described in a variety of ways. And and some of those messages are attractive and truthful, and they're worthy of a committed life. And some of those messages come off as punitive and cold and rigid, but that message was good news. I like to say we have an optimistic theology at this institution, and it's optimistic for our life right now. It makes a difference for our life right now, and it's optimistic for our eternity with God. What do you want? What do we want? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message. It may not be the most creative message. It's been repeated before. It will be repeated again. But Lord, I pray that it is a truth that sinks deep into the fabric, deep into that subterranean soul. Lord, that it's just a part of us. It's in the water. Lord, help us with our ideas, our theology, our orthodoxy to be faithful unto you. Lord, we want to have the right ideas and organize around ideas that govern our lives in effective and faithful and truthful ways. We want to express those things. We want to practice those things. We want to have the fruit that comes from that, Lord. But Father, I pray that we would have a heart a heart, Lord, that honors and glorifies You, a heart that is spirit-filled, a heart that is warm, a heart that is attractive. Lord, help us to be virtuous people, to have ordered affections, our affections around the right things, especially, Lord, when the wind blows and sometimes blows so strongly to disorder our affections, to draw us to idols, to have us motion towards shadowy things. Lord, I pray that this community would be different, not because we try hard, but because your spirit would be among us. So God, we thank you. We thank you that you're here. We thank you that you're present. And Lord, without your presence, we're just people doing things. So please be present here. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.